he still acts entirely like himself. But at the same time, he's having all these conversations like, oh yeah, no, no, that's, uh, that's my royal blood, that is. That's, you know, can you imagine? That, that, that's who I am. And his sense of who he is is changed. Now, I know that Ali's spoken at uh, nine o'clock, uh, probably in the last, about three, four years ago now. If you look at our wedding album, and you go through the photos, and you've got father and uh, mother of the bride, father and mother of the groom. When you get to family of the bride, Ali looks and goes, yeah, that's my gene pool. <laughs> and there's all these people, and they share these very similar traits. They're all about the same height. They've all got a similar build. Um, they've all got similar coloured hair. And you kind of go, oh, okay. So she goes, yeah, it's the Kyle family. They're, they're all Kyles. I'm a Kyle. And when Ali goes back to Northern Ireland, um, she'll go into shops. And people say, oh, you're a Kyle. And she'll go, yes. <laughs> and then have a conversation about, you know, which of her relatives the person in the shop knew. There is that sense of this is who you are. This will affect you'll have sore knees and you'll have bunions when you're older and all sorts of other stuff they, they all gossip about they, uh, whenever they get together. But there's a sense of you are who you are partly from, from where you've come from because of genetics, because of uh, culture, because of what your parents have put into you. And so it's just interesting to look in our readings today both at the people of Israel, under Nehemiah, and at Jesus, and what gives them the sense of who they are. Now, at Nehemiah, there is a very definite context. And for those of you who know it, I apologise for going over it again. But this is post-exile. So that means this is uh, after that point when uh, the king of Babylon came and laid war against Israel and basically destroyed uh, Jerusalem just kind of went in, took it over, ransacked the temple. And then anyone who was, all the aristocracy, all the people who made the uh, state work, were captured. And they were taken en masse to Babylon. Uh, and then he brought other people into Israel to settle there. And kind of, he mixed up his empire so people couldn't um, make use of what they knew of the land. They couldn't rise up against him very easily. And for the people of Israel, this was, this was dreadful. Because all the way through up to that point, you look at the Old Testament up until um, the end of the Book of Kings, whenever they were struggling, they called out to the Lord. And the Lord heard them. And the Lord delivered them. And they had victory against the Midianites, the Philistines, the Ammonites. All these people who came and stood against them, they would defeat because the hand of the Lord was with them. And so exile meant one of two things. Either the God of the Babylonians was stronger than their God, or the hand of the Lord was not with them. And so they went into exile. They were in exile for 70 years. And the story of Nehemiah is the story of Nehemiah uh, as, a, as a Jew, hearing that uh, Jerusalem's in ruins. The wall's knocked down. There's no gates up. You can't be a city without a wall. You've got to have a means of protecting yourself against raiders, against those who would come and stand against you. If you haven't got a wall, you're not a city. You're just a collection of buildings, and it's just, it's laughable. And that's the capital, and he hears about it, and he weeps. 
and he prays and he asks God to be with him and he gets permission miraculously from the king of Babylon to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So by chapter 8, the walls have been rebuilt and they've cleared the temple and in clearing it, they find the book of the law. And so our chapter today is where they are reading the book of the law. So the first five books of the Bible, they're reading it for the first time. From most of given that the lifespan is not 70 years, this many years ago, um, this for the first time. And so Ezra reads it from start to finish. Um, and it says here, um, it was from early morning until noon, and it was to everyone who could understand. So men, women, and children who were old enough to understand. And they listen. And they understand, and they cry. Now, I and I had a discussion about this. So why are they crying? And so my first th- feeling was, well, it sets out all the laws. It sets out all the things that you're meant to be doing if you're a Jew. And they've not been doing them. They've been all over the place. They've not been together. How could they keep these things? So they've just realised how far they've gone and what they've lost. And so they're in tears and they're, they're sorry and everything else. And Ali said, no, I don't, I don't think so. For me, for, as in, this is Ali speaking, they're overwhelmed. It's like reading a letter from someone you love who you've not spoken to for such a long time. The book of the law is the story of God choosing the people of Israel and saying, you are my people. I make this promise with you, Abraham, and with all your descendants. And there are laws so that uh, they will will do well, they will be okay, they will be looked after. Honour thy father and mother, that you would live long in the land that I'm giving to you. As Ali is saying, they're just overwhelmed. It's this sense of connection that God has not forgotten them. Actually, this law says this is their story. This is who they are. They are the people God chose. They are the people God loves. And then you have our passage ends with Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites saying, don't cry. Don't mourn. Celebrate. Go and prepare food. Share with other people. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is a sense of something recovered and something then that can sustain them that they should celebrate, that they should make the most of them, they should enjoy, that they should say, yes, look, we were lost, but now we are found because we understand who we are. And now we can begin again these traditions, uh, these um, telling these stories to our children, doing these things that help us to stay close to the God who chose us. So if that's the people of God, understanding who they are from the book of the law, then our gospel reading, which I love, it's, um, you know, you've got these little... um, taglines that we put into each section of the Bible that obviously aren't part of the Bible 
is how we help to make it more understandable. It says, Jesus rejected at Nazareth. And then I mean, they stopped before Jesus gets rejected at Nazareth. So we know how this is going to end. But Jesus has gone back to the synagogue in the place where he grew up. And it's the, the day of worship. Everyone there knows him. They know his family. They know his parents. They know his grandparents. They know the house that he grew up in. Their kids played with him uh, as they were growing up. Or they played with him as they were growing up. And so he stands up to read the scriptures. And I imagine people kind of going, oh, isn't that nice? Little Jesus, Mary's boy. It's lovely, it's lovely when they come back, isn't it? It's lovely when you see them taking their place in the community. And he reads out from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord's upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down. So that all eyes uh, in the synagogue looked at him intently. All eyes were fixed on him. And then he speaks to them, saying, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And at that point, actually, if you read the whole uh, chapter, everyone's like, Ooh, he seems very confident. He speaks with authority. But this is Joseph's son, isn't it? And then he goes on to speak about the fact that God's love is for those who are outside the, uh, the kingdom of Israel. That it's not just for the Jews, at which point they completely lose their rag with him and say, get out of here. Uh, who do you think you are? So in the context of Jesus going and saying who he is in a way that is going to lead to him being rejected. Where does Jesus' sense of identity come from? It's certainly not from being Mary's son. There's no reference to him being a carpenter going, oh, do you know when I was growing up here, I used to do this and this. None of that. He goes straight to this uh, promise in Isaiah that God was going to send someone uh, to be his anointed servant. And so he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to do a job, to do this job. And actually, when you see what Jesus does from that point on to his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection, what's he do? He preaches. He preaches good news. He preaches um, that uh, God is near and he gives the blind their sight. The lame walk. And people who have been oppressed by evil spirits are set free. Their lives are changed, they are released. He demonstrates the year of the Lord's favour wherever he goes. This is what he does. But we also know that throughout his uh, ministry, throughout those three years, people challenge him. They say, what are you doing? Why are you eating with sinners? Why do you meet with those people? Why are your disciples eating on the Sabbath? Why, why, why are you doing that? That's not okay. Or even from the disciples themselves saying... Oh, Lord, everyone's really excited about the miracles you did in that town. Let's go back and do some more. And he goes, no, I need to go to the other villages so I can preach there. There's also, that's what I came for. Jesus is always very able to say, what I need to do now is this. Off we go. Now, I don't know about you, but I very rarely have that level of confidence 
It was, it's like, oh, I could do this, I could do that. What should I do first? What's most important? Who's going to nag me the most? Uh, who's going to be most cross if I don't do that? Oh, okay. Uh, oh, I need to remember my mum. And I, I can get quite tired. But we don't see that from Jesus. Jesus knows who he is. And he knows what he's meant to do. And he gets on and does it. In a way that is incredibly effective. Um, and that he is able to sustain for three years. He doesn't burn out doing it, but he brings life and he brings healing and he brings blessing wherever he goes. So, given that I can't in all honesty sit here and stand here and say, right, you need to be like Jesus. Because we're not Jesus. But we can be like the people of Israel. We can draw our sense of who we are from the Bible it tells us what God thinks of us it tells us what God wants us to be doing and it can give us clarity when we have to say no to people if you've got all these different things to do actually you are accountable to a higher power and it's okay for you to say to people actually I can't do that today I'd love to help, I can do that next week, but today I have to do this. And that comes from being secure in who God has asked you to be. I look at scripture and scripture tells me that I am being changed from glory to glory. I am being made new. And so therefore, one of the things that I am committed to is learning more about myself, more about God, more about the world that he's put me in, because that's what the Bible tells me I'm called to do. The Bible tells me that I am a disciple of Jesus. I'm there to learn from him. And so if I'm not learning, I'm not doing my job. The Bible tells me that I am loved by God. Whatever happens, I am loved by him. I can love because he first loved me. And so that means when other people are upset with me, actually, I can look at it honestly and say, do I need to say sorry to them? Do I need to fix that? Okay, but it doesn't. But I'm still loved. I'm still okay. I haven't got to do what other people want all the time to make sure they're they're happy, because the key thing is that I make God happy. Am I doing what God's asking me to do? And I'll be honest with you, this is stuff that I'm only just getting to grips with, and I'll be getting to grips with for the rest of my life. But where I I know where I am reading the Bible and I'm understanding God's promises to me and understanding what God has asked me to do and what he is uh, requiring of me day by day, I have so much more confidence to get on and do it with all the distractions around that tell me, oh, you're not okay unless you've done X. You need to have achieved something. Just as an aside, um, I'm really excited today. I'm going to St Paul's Cathedral because Ali is preaching this afternoon. She was nominated by the Bishop of London to go and do a, a sermon at Evensong today. So I'm going to go and watch. Uh, and I, Ali is incredibly nervous. But I'm so proud of her. And we were interviewed for the Church Times. They're doing a, a piece on clergy couples. And um, this lady was talking to me and saying, so, you know, how does it work and how do you find splitting the job and everything else? I said, it's fine. But actually, the thing that I've had to get to grips with is that 
for Ali to do the things that Ali is gifted in and called to do, I need to make sure that I pull my weight in all the unseen stuff. And I need to look after the house, I need to cook, I need to shop, I need to think about what happens inside the house. And when we've spoken to other couples who are thinking about sharing ordained ministry, often that's the point where I can see the male half of the couple going, hmm, I'm, I'm not so sure that's what I feel called to. And she said to me, does that not, does that not challenge your masculinity? And I thought, and I, yeah, I, I thought about it for a second. It's like, why would it? I'm doing what God's given me to do. As a result, Ali does what she's called to do. And I'm so proud of her. It's fantastic. And I'm free. I'm not trying to live up to some sort of, unless I have built a church of 2,000 worshippers and raised money for a new church building in Sri Lanka, and, and, and then I'm okay. I'm okay because God loves me. As long as I'm doing the things he's called me to do, then I have nothing to fear and nothing to prove. If I felt like that every day, it would be great. But it's only by coming back to God's word and understanding who I am from what's written in here that I get there. So just ask you, um, again, as I've asked them various times, how easy do you find it to read the Bible? Have you got things that help you? Uh, there's an app for that. There's daily bread Bible reading notes. Um, there'll be bits that Premier Radio will read to you uh, while you listen to that on, um, on the radio. If you don't read it regularly, can I suggest you just pick up the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke and just try and read one of those sections each morning. See how Jesus speaks to people and think about how he would speak to you in the things that are going on in your life and what you're doing there. See how kind he is. See how much he challenges people who, who load burdens on others and make them suffer. Because as you understand Jesus more from this, it really does free you from the pressures that other people place on you. Ultimately, you are only responsible to God. So find out what he wants. Find out more about him and live in that. And I promise you, it's abundant life. It is freedom. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, your living word. And for this, your written word, where we hear his, what he says, we see what he did. We read the account of your people as they try to understand how they should live following you. Lord, we pray you would fill us again and again each day with your Holy Spirit. We might hear your voice speaking to us through your word. That we might be your people. And we might have confidence and security in belonging to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.